Hello and welcome to Talk Gnosis, the web's favorite talk show about Gnosticism, Gnosis, the ancient Gnostics, mysticism, magic, Christian mysticism, spirituality, meditation, philosophy, romanticism, Schlelling, modernism, Hegel, Heidegger, postmodernism, post-postmodernism, whatever else we feel like talking about. I'm your host, your only host tonight. Uh, unfortunately, Lainey couldn't make it and our many guest hosts were all busy because they're selfish having lives so i'm i'm here hosting by myself but folks i'm not all by myself we got a great guest tonight it's uh bishop uh, will be in mar thomas uh ajc bishop primate of uh the ajc and uh a, a real life full-time uh in the flesh philosopher we're going to be talking about gnosticism and philosophy your grace hello and thanks for joining us Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. That was quite the intro there. Yeah, thank you. So, at, at, at least I know I won't I won't verge out of uh, the approved topics because I don't think there are there is anything that is outside of the approved topics. Yes, so. yes, exactly. It's very inclusive that way. So right. Um, well, I know that uh, you folks are eager to get into this fascinating topic. Uh, it's actually a show that we've had uh, more than one person request, to be honest. So that's why we are we're extra pumped to be doing it and extra pumped to have Mar Thomas back because it's been way too long. But before we get to the dessert, we uh, have to eat our broccoli first. And since I have to do our commercial and beg you for money, uh, we are listener supported. We uh, do use a studio, 99 Perspectives, out of Chicago, so the world's best digital studio. We literally can't do the show without your financial support. So if you're able to, please go to patreon.com slash Gnostic, where you can donate for as little as a dollar per month. You can also put a cap on, or sorry, a little as a dollar per piece of media per month. And if we do a bunch of media, you can put a cap on that so that we don't overcharge you. You can stay within your comfort zone. You can also do one-time donations at paypal.me. Able to help us financially, we 100% uh, understand. Uh, these are trying times. Uh, and you can also help us out by sharing the show, uh, leaving reviews both on the podcatcher of your choice and on youtube by liking and subscribing by uh, sharing us on social media uh mouth to mouth is very effective uh for spreading the word so please if you can uh, uh help us out in those ways okay the, the begging is over <laughs> the commercial is over we can we can dive on into it and uh your grace i, I guess we better we better go back a couple thousand years uh and uh, apparently Plato is a big deal in philosophy, even till this day. Um, I've, I've heard that, yeah. Yes, yeah. But uh, what does he have to do with Gnosticism? Um, the relationship between Plato and Gnosticism is is really kind of fascinating. And, and uh, because I, I really would want to first make a distinction between Platonism and Gnosticism, because they are two really different approaches. And... Uh, just to give a little bit of a shout out to uh, everybody's favorite Neoplatonist, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Kupperman, uh, he would repeatedly stab me if I uh, didn't make it clear that uh, the, the Neoplatonists, people like Iamblichus and Plotinus, are not Gnostics. But there really is this profound inheritance in Gnosticism from the kind of thinking that we see in Plato. 
Plato, of course, is the one who who first sort of presents the idea of the demiurge in the Timaeus. Um, the demiurge there is a is a positive force is a is something that is uh, responsible for the fundamental structure that underlies the universe. So there's there's definitely not this uh, sense of the demiurge as uh, as an evil presence or as a something that is a, a failed creation or something like that. Um, we see the the idea of the archaic state in the the statesman, um, where this the idea of the golden age is is presented, um, and more than anything, this fundamental split between the material world and the spiritual world that becomes so much a part of uh, Manichaeanism, of course, uh, but other forms of Gnosticism, and that ultimately later philosophers are simply going to identify under the, the general terminology of metaphysics. That, that defines uh, the Platonic approach in many ways, and that is such an essential part of, of Gnosticism that I think it would be impossible to talk about Gnosticism without talking about this inheritance from, from Plato. Right. And it's it's very direct to the point of I believe part of Plato's Republic was actually found in the Nag Hammadi um, uh, uh, scriptures, like in that cache of documents. So they were they yeah, were really really engaging. With I've Plato. always been I've always been fascinated by this that that there's this essentially a, a fairly short document, and uh, when it was first uh, you know found in in forty five, um, they didn't immediately recognize it as oh. Plato. And so it was. It was given a title. Somebody came up with a title for it, and and it was only later on that somebody went, "Wait a second, this sounds really familiar. I've I've, I've heard this somewhere." And they were able to match it up with this segment from uh, from Republic. The idea that Plato was regarded by at least one community as worthy of being included in a, a, a scriptural. A tradition, I think, is is something that is unique uh, among uh, early Christians, to be sure. So that's something that that I think we need to acknowledge that there is, like you said, this historical, very direct link between Plato and what we come to know as as Gnosticism. Yeah, and, and I don't think, you know, you can't always trust a heresiologist, but I think they too say the Gnostics are really into Plato. They even have statues of him and Socrates. Uh, so yeah, just th those connections are, are quite fascinating because I know a lot of people in the ancient world would pr probably pick up Plato's second, third, or even fourth hand, right? So they seem to really be directly, yeah. Um, and it's interesting because Irenaeus, I mean, speaking of the heresiologists, I mean, the good bishop is the one that always, always comes to mind. Um, he's one of our primary sources for understanding Gnosticism all the way up until the discovery of the, the Kanabaskian uh, trove in, in 45. Um, and so when we're talking about say the the German idealists, you know, people like like Schelling and 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 Hölderlin and Hegel, um, they don't have access to to the Nag Hammadi library. They don't have access to those those texts. And so any understanding that they might have of Gnosticism 
is primarily going to be informed by these heresiological accounts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's actually a great lead into my next question. And, you know, maybe someday we'll do a, a future show about more of the ancient philosophers and the philosophical heritage connected to Gnosticism. But a lot of people want to know uh, about more modern philosophers. And by modern, I mean, you know, the roots of modernism, <laughs> the last 300 years or so. So, so it, are, are there philosophers and schools of philosophy that, that sort of jump out to you and seem to share some common features with Gnosticism from this time period, from the last couple hundred years? I think that my my take on this is, is going to be a little idiosyncratic because it's, it's really going to be informed by my own philosophical work, um, which primarily concerned uh, German idealism and, uh, you know, and uh, Heidegger and, and Derrida. Um, so those are the figures that that sort of I see the connections in. Because while I've always worked very, very hard to uh, to keep my uh, sort of professional life and my, my spiritual life at least marginally compartmentalized, necessarily they inform one another. And yeah. so when I was uh, writing my dissertation, for example, which is primarily on, on Hegel and Schelling, um, you know, the, the connections between what I was reading and my own spiritual experiences were obviously something that was going to, to have an impact. And Hegel is, is we know two things that I think are, are striking about Hegel and its relationship to Gnosticism is that, first of all, we know he was familiar with Gnosticism. Uh, there, there are references in the lectures on the history of philosophy to, to the Gnostics. So we know he was explicitly familiar with that tradition. But also as early as 1835, um, Ferdinand Christian Bauer, uh, in a work called uh, Die Christliche Gnosis, right? The Christian Gnosis uh, specifically picks out Hegel as a modern Gnostic. Oh. And more, more than anything, uh, the argument there is that people like Hegel and Schelling in particular are indebted to Jakob Berma. Yeah. And that Berma represented a kind of, of Gnosticism. And it's unclear to me to what extent uh, people like Bauer are, are simply identifying what they think of as a, a mystical dimension and calling it Gnostic, uh, or whether there's something that is uniquely Gnostic in a very specific way about uh, what Hegel and Schelling and Hegel and, and, and Novalis and others are doing. Um, because I think even today we're sort of plagued by this problem that that people who are interested in Gnosticism and fascinated by it and drawn to it then begin to see it everywhere and and we begin to lose the the terminological precision of yeah. of the word right that it simply becomes a catch-all term for on the one hand any kind of Christian mysticism or uh, you know, meditative practice or anything like that. And so a lot of things get lumped in to it that are not specifically Gnostic. And on the other hand, you know, we'll, from the position of um, 
small o orthodox uh, Christianity, uh, the accusation of uh, Gnosticism is often leveled at uh, an extraordinary variety of figures and groups that often have absolutely nothing to do with Gnosticism and probably don't even recognize the word. Um, but I think that in in the the German idealists and and the the Romantics we see something that does connect to uh, certainly Burma's uh, tradition, um, but also some of the the Gnostic ideas that are present in the the classical texts um, regarding the role that knowledge plays and and the way that the life of God progresses. Um, for Hegel in particular, you know, the journey of God to, to come to know himself is, is something that on the one hand, yeah, is, is running con, uh, counter to the sort of traditionalist scholastic and the pietist tradition, but, but is also something that I think if we're, imagining uh, the, the, sort of the life of the Godhead uh, in Valentinian Gnosticism or something like that, suddenly sounds very, very familiar. Um, and uh, Schelling in particular has uh, this notion of God's self-overcoming, where God is something that is is active and vibrant and and is not simply a, a perfect thing that is eternal and unchanging and uh, and fixed, monolithic, but rather something that undergoes uh, transformation. And I think that that's wonderful in that it mirrors uh, the human ascent uh, that we see in Gnosticism. And I know, uh, you know, Father Tony Silvia has done you know wonderful work uh, talking about the way in which um, the spiritual ascent and the initiatory journey is coded into so much of the Gnostic mythology, and it makes sense to me at least that that we as sparks of the divine, as bearers of the sacred flame, as uh, echoes of of the original creation that we should follow that that same path that the Godhead undertakes to come to self knowledge and self overcoming. Um, so I, I I don't think that people like like Ferdinand Bauer are wrong in suggesting that there is a not just a mystical element in Hegel and, and Schelling and Hoderlin, but, but a specifically Gnostic one. So I, I think that that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, an important sort of connection there. Whether they would have thought of themselves as Gnostic, you know, who knows, right? That's, uh, that's something else. Um, but to be sure, uh, their contemporaries or, or near contemporaries are identifying this strain in their thinking. Yeah. Do, do you see anything else in, in Hegel that sort of jumps out to you as, as Gnostic or Gnostically informed or works well within a modern Gnostic setting? 
Um, I think that primarily um, this idea of of the the journey of God is toward knowledge in particular is uh, specifically gnostic uh, but also the idea that uh, there are there are echoes in Hegel I think of of negative theology and that that God is something that uh, we can never have, knowledge of in a, a positive sense, but rather only through through carving away untruths. And and so I think that I think that, that too has echoes in uh, the idea of what Hans Jonas calls the the alien God, right? Which I think is if I'm trying to and I and I give some thought to this with some frequency, give an account of what we actually mean by this this term gnostic i mean uh dr deconic has been you know sort of famously uh, critical of of using this term and and i think that her her emphasis on terminological precision is is all to the good right i think that it's important that that we use this term with uh, a clear sense of what it is that we're defining and identifying. Um, I, I'm not sure that I would go as far as she does in saying that that we oughtn't to uh, sort of lump too many of these groups together. We ought to ought not to use that as too big uh, an umbrella. But um, to be sure, I think that there are elements that. Um, we can see as very specifically Gnostic in in the writings of of people like Hegel and Schelling, and and, and it's true a lot of it is coming through through Burma. Um, and my knowledge of Burma is always mediated by Schelling, right? I mean, I that's sort of how I get into to Burma. Um, and to be absolutely frank, I don't know uh, Jakob Burma as well as I ought to, considering that I've, you know, pretended to lecture on it. Um, Notor notoriously easy to read, <laughs> Burma. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, well, yes, naturally. Uh, there's Schelling yeah. and Hegel, too, right? Yeah, I yeah, mean, it's, it's, light. it's always light reading. Yeah. Um, but um, I think that the the idea of, of knowledge of God being something that is... Uh, is a, is an, a negative process. I think is is something that uh, ties together uh, Hegelianism and uh, if we can call that a thing, yeah. uh, and and Gnosticism. Yeah. No, I, I do agree with you about how we do have to be precise with our our terminology. But at the same time, it's, you know, when you're talking about some of these figures, and maybe we can't call them Gnostics, but we can at least say, uh, uh, specifically, these are Gnostic ideas, Gnostic thoughts. And, and also, uh, and I'm not uh, explaining myself very well here, but when you have somebody who's specifically getting ideas from the stream of Gnosis, from historical Gnosticism, and then taking mystical ideas uh, from themselves or from their surrounding environment, uh, all of a sudden, you, you have a lot of qualities and ideas that the Gnostics believed and embraced, right? All within one figure or within one body of thought. So when you see, at least to me, all of this 
uh, coming together. Uh, you know, I think we can at least use the G word, but, but like what you're doing sometimes with uh, with a little asterisk there. Yeah, and it's it's funny because uh, you know I've argued that uh, Gnost classical Gnosticism uh, is is a very intellectual exercise that that for them yeah. it was it was a philosophical exercise and this is actually played out for me um, in interesting ways because um, I, I think about for example you know teaching Gnosticism to children. And I said, why the hell would you want to do that, right? I mean, that, that's, no, you teach orthodoxy to children, right? Because yeah. um, it's easy to understand. That's incredibly disparaging. And, I'm, and I don't mean it that way, but, you know, a little bit. Um, but Gnosticism is something that you have to, you have to sort of engage with when you've come to a certain level of philosophical insight. Um, it, it's not something that is, is, lends itself to simple terminology or, or a simple mythology or something where you can just sort of have a coloring book and, and, you know, learn the stories and you're good to go. Um, it involves grappling with really challenging philosophical concepts, not the least of which is the fact that we find ourselves in a, in a universe where we are not at home, um, that's that's a disturbing and uncanny sort of of experience. And and for many ways, I think both Gnosticism and philosophical approaches in a certain tradition, starting in the the late 18th and early 19th century, are a way to grapple with with this uncanniness, with this not at homeness in which we find ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely uh, agree. And, you know, and I've actually, you know, I, I think probably a conclave or something heard you speak on, you know, the, the intellectual exercise of, of the ancient Gnostics. And I completely agree with you, too. And I also sort of grapple with that, where it's like, like, my wife is like, if we have kids, are you going to raise some Gnostic? And I'm like, am I? I'm like, maybe I'll just send them to the local Episcopalian Sunday school. And then when they're old enough, be like, by the way. I think there's, there's a lot to be said for that, actually, yeah. because... Because I think that in terms of what we want a faith community or a faith commitment to do for children, yeah. um, traditional Christianity does that really well if we listen to the actual teachings of, of, of the Gospels. Um, if I want my children to be decent human beings and care for their fellow human beings, right, traditional Christianity's kind of got that covered, even if it uh, doesn't live up to its own aims all too frequently. Um, I, there's nothing that, that Gnosticism can add really to that. But once they get to a certain point and they begin to to want to understand this this created world and and the universe in which we live more profoundly that's when you say well come on over here i've got this thing i want to show you and and i think that that uh, there's a lot to be said for that approach that that you can get to gnosticism through again small o orthodoxy or, or large o orthodoxy if you like 
Yeah, exactly. And it's it's a discussion for another day. But but I sometimes wonder, too, if um, since we live in the most secular generation that is getting more secular every day, particularly up here in Canada, where we do have a lot of uh, people for the modern Gnostic communities who, for whatever reason, are still attracted to us, but may not have a very strong Christian background. And I think about something like Secret John, like Secret John wants you to read Genesis first. They want you to know that story inside and outside. Secret John isn't a replacement for the book of Genesis, right? So You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's it's something I you know I kind of you know think about sometimes or grapple with sometimes. And and by the way, if you have an on church background, don't worry. We we still want you to come hang out with us. <laughs> yeah, we'll 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 do a a, a, a kind of primer course uh, pretty quickly. We'll get you up to speed. Yeah. Um, but I think that I mean this I think is a, a is a good point just about the AJC in particular, and I, I'm sure this is true of many other. Uh, spiritual organizations that uh, that we are open to people of goodwill, and that means you know if you are you know coming from a, a, a Protestant background, a Catholic background, a, um, a Jewish background, a Muslim background, an atheist background, uh, a pagan background, a witch and background, a Satanist background, whatever. If you're coming in as a decent human being with an earnest seeking for for community and and understanding then of course the door is going to stand wide open you don't even necessarily have to be a decent human being if you could be a decent human being while you're showing up <laughs> the rest I'm, of the time. I'm trying to pitch that because I'm trying to make a claim for myself okay. that, yeah. that, you know, if I can claim that I'm a decent human being, which nobody I don't think has ever claimed ever, yeah. um, you know, I can you know, sort of get off scot-free here without explaining myself too much. Yeah, when this goes live on YouTube, there's going to be a pop-up with one of those uh, fact checks. Just gonna yeah, not, yes, yeah. yes. Mar Thomas okay. is not a decent human being. Mar Thomas is barely a human being. Yeah. So, I'm also going to edit the beginning of the show for, to make you say, uh, Proculus was a Gnostic, and then I'll just uh, said that to Dr. Jeffrey Kupperman. So, yeah, I, yeah. Just, I, I can imagine that that is easily done. And um, I, I worry because... Because Dr. Kupperman is um, at times heavily armed and uh, also very skilled in martial arts. So um, his ability to, to kill me on sight is never in question. Yes, well, that's why they call him Jeffrey the Stabber. But we, we have got an off topic, which is uh, if we right. talk about uh, romanticism, I, I feel is a topic that a lot of our audience is going to be familiar with because, you know, it pops up in high school uh, literature classes. Uh, it, it often pops up in lots of different places. And, and in my opinion, it's, it, it's really a philosophical movement that really uh, has had a, a strong impact on, on, on life even up to today. Can you talk a little bit about uh, German romanticism and, and possible connections to Gnosticism. It's interesting because when we talk about German Romanticism, it's very different from from the English Romanticism that we're probably more familiar with. You know, we're familiar with Byron and and, and Wollstonecraft and those folk, and and that that sort of Romantic uh, tradition. But but in Germany, it, it takes a, a somewhat different form. First of all, it is more sort of philosophically inclined. Um, because I think about people like like Hölderlin, um, and Hölderlin's poetry is um, at, at one and the same time uh, very 
very nostalgic, right? Very romantic in that sense. It's looking back to uh, to ancient Greece in particular. Um, you know, the subtitle of the novel uh, Hyperion is the Hermit in Greece, um, and and so there is this this sort of call back to uh, to the Greek tradition in uh, romanticism, in German romanticism, um, but also to, to the idea of origins generally and to, to looking at uh, things before they have become encrusted by uh, certain forms of, of civilization or um, political thinking and and this impulse to to sort of read backwards, I think, is something that that speaks especially to modern Gnostics, uh, because that's I think for many of us, maybe I'm just speaking to my own experience here, that that's the impulse that we're following. That that we live in a world, as you've said, that is increasingly secular and. Um, and, and and there are many wonderful things that have come along with that secularization, to be sure. And we don't want to lose those. But we want to also then read back through a tradition to maybe get at something at the origin of, say, a faith tradition like Christianity that that isn't encrusted with the the whole history of the ways in which that message has been manipulated and used and deployed and tortured and and set on fire and buried and had its head cut off and rolled up in carpets and thrown in the naval rip right no that's that's somebody else but um you know the, that we we want to think back to something that's more originary and 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 I see that same impulse in uh, the the romantics generally, in the the German romantics in particular. Um, if we could skip ahead, uh, you've mentioned Heidegger uh, the, a few times. Could you talk about him and any possible connections to Gnosticism that you see, or ideas uh, that he has that, you, that seem to have some similarities to the Gnostics? I always, this is always dangerous ground, right? Yeah. Uh, because you, you can't talk about Heidegger without talking about his, uh, let's call it very euphemistically, deeply regrettable political investments. Yes. Um, the man was a flaming Nazi. Yes. Um, so, you know, there's that. And so I think that to a certain extent, especially modern Gnostics, might be a little hesitant to say, you know, Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, these ideas are what we want to 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 hitch our wagon to, uh, because then it raises really serious questions about uh, the relationship between between philosophy and faith and and these kinds of of political investments. Um, but all of that said, um, I think that there there are aspects of Heidegger's thinking that that again appeal especially to modern Gnosticism. And uh, again, this idea of sort of reading back closer to the origin. And for Heidegger, that was a, a twisting free of metaphysics. This is a, a terminology that he uses with some frequency to, 
try to get back to a point in philosophy where the question of being is still a question. It's not something where we do, we've already given ourselves the answer, right? The, oh, being is presence, it's duration over time, blah, blah, blah. Okay, done, pack that away. Let's do, do something else, right? To say, no, let's, let's reopen that question. Let's re-examine that question. Let's look at the circumstances in which people like Plato were asking the question of being in uh, a naive way, and I'm trying to use that word in a positive sense, right? Mm -hmm. that, that they were able to, to look at the question of being uh, with, with unencumbered eyes. Uh, they weren't looking at it through the, the veils of uh, 2,500 years of philosophy. And Gnosticism, modern Gnosticism, I think, is in many ways an attempt to do the same thing for Christianity, to say, okay, what would it be like to experience the presence of the Christ event in a direct way that is not encumbered by a tradition of, of theology and schism and political infighting and, uh, you know, and everything that goes along on with that. And that, that is at one and the same time, of course, uh, a romantic notion, right? It's an impossible romantic notion. Um, but for Heidegger, he tries to think this without the nostalgic dimension, right? Without saying, oh, well, we can just sort of turn back the clock and do what they did, right? He knows that that's impossible. And so I think that, that the impulse here is very, very similar. But there are other elements, I think, that uh, I find in, in Heidegger, particularly the later Heidegger, um, the idea of the, the poet as, as the sayer of the sacred, um, that, that, that poetry and symbol and mythology has a, a way of expressing the sacred and expressing our relationship to being in, in a unique way that, that even philosophy can't quite do. Um, philosophy only gets us so far, but then there has to be this next leap, and to, to make that leap, we have to we have to follow the the poets. We have to follow the myths. We have to set logos aside in favor of mythos, and and that that sense and that move, I think, is something that um, to be sure, Heidegger is inheriting from people like like Nietzsche, um, but but that we desperately need in both our our philosophy and our our faith communities this regard for for the richness of poetic and mythological expression um so you know i always hear you know poets as the sayer of the sacred as as something that i think the the Early Gnostics, the classical Gnostics, would have uh, would have grabbed onto very easily. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, then skipping ahead uh, once more. Now, I, I started university, first went to university in, in 1999. And I remember uh, Derrida and the postmodernists and continental philosophy was, was still very... Uh, um, Magnetic. You're just trying to make me feel old, aren't you? That was that's what that move was for. I, you think you're slick. You think you you think I don't I don't see what you're doing here. Um, good lord! In 1990, you said you started university when? 1999. So, but that's going to make a I lot. I had my of first child when I was 1999, <laughs> or in, in not when I was 19 in 1999, and. My God, I already I was already working on my PhD. Oh my God, I'm just gonna go hang myself now. <laughs> um, thank you for that. Thank you. I can always count on you to make me feel better about myself. Well, just wait till I edit that Heidegger uh, section. So. Oh yeah, great. Yeah. So you, yeah. you're gonna make me look like a complete, you know, fascist pig or something like that. Yeah. So. Um, so, uh, Derrida, uh, the very exciting I remember at the time. Now I wonder if undergrads are, are as drawn to him now that we live in uh, hyper-normalization. <laughs> but if you could, uh, uh, I don't remember anything about him. I did read a, a few books on theology and Derrida. It's all out of my brain. Uh, I, what do you see if there's any, if there's any connections between uh, the Gnostics, Gnosticism, and his thought? Um, well, certainly, I mean, deconstruction... Uh, took the idea of uh, a, a kind of a certain kind of Gnosticism very seriously. I mean, Paul de Man uh, and others, you know, were very very interested in it. Uh, Derrida um, really explored the, the the avenue of his of his own uh, Judaism and was very interested in in Jewish mysticism, which of course. Is I mean we've been talking a lot about sort of the Platonic uh, dimension and the the philosophical dimension of of Gnosticism, but of course the other huge inherit you know huge inheritance is from uh, is from Merkaba mysticism and and Kabbalah and those things, and we know that Hegel was familiar with with Kabbalah. We know that he you know uh, at least knew of this. I don't know what sort of understanding he had and how that was mediated. But when we get to, to Derrida and um, the question then becomes uh, one of a different kind of reading, of a reading of, of the gaps, of the, the unspoken, of, of the unsaid, and, and, and finding, finding truth in, in indifference and uh, not in identity but in variation in movement rather than stasis and I don't think it's an accident that uh, you know when we look at the the eons right often the the first two of the eons are the Buthos and the Sihe right the depth and silence mm. um, that those gaps that that emptiness is where things happen it's where it begins and i think that derrida's attempt to deconstruct the metaphysical tradition um, speaks again to to the yearning uh that is present in the 
the the early Gnostics and in in modern Gnosticism as well to to find a, an experience of the world that is not defined by traditional concepts of presence and uh, fixity and identity, but instead to experience some of the the multiplicity and the plurality of of the sacred and. I don't think it's an accident that that for all of their Platonism and for all of their monism, uh, the early Gnostics always had this plethora of divine beings that filled the universe, that there was always this activity. Um, it was never reducible to a one. It was never uh, it was never as simple as that. It was always something that dwelt in in complexity and dwelt in plurality and dwelt in movement. Um, and I, th I think figures like uh, Lusa Iragaray, uh, you know, who's uh, closely associated with, with Derrida, um, does a wonderful job of, of gesturing towards this, these silences and these gaps. And the way that she develops, you know, for example, I just sort of got it in my brain, right? This, this, idea of of the daimonic right of eros as a, a daimonic force that bridges the gap between the the sacred and and the profane or between the human and the divine um, that's something that i think also has a, a, a strong appeal at the very least for uh for the modern gnostic and may might in some ways uh, echo the initial impulse of of classical Gnosticism. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned the the modern Gnostics, do you see any influence or inspiration on the kind of modern Gnostic churches and movements from some of the philosophies we've been talking about? Um, to be sure, um, you know, modern Gnostics tend to be a bunch of giant nerds. That's <laughs> no surprise to anyone at all who's watching this. Um, and and so they are uh they tend to be philosophically literate in a way that uh you know uh, uh 13th century uh you know christian peasants could never hope to be um that they're coming to it with with an understanding of and a recognition of the value of philosophical approaches, um, and certainly, you know, we don't see the kind of of anti-intellectualism amongst modern Gnostics that we might encounter in, for example, certain forms of, of fundamentalism, whether that be, you know, Christian fundamentalism or uh, you know, Orthodox Jewish fundamentalism or Muslim fundamentalism or atheist fundamentalism. Um, we don't have the, the anti-intellectualism that sometimes comes along with those dogmatic um, sort of intellectual investments. Um, so I think that, that the fact that, that contemporary Gnostics um, are reading Plato and they're reading Schelling, and they're reading Derrida, and they're reading Heidegger, and they're they're reading Hölderlin, and they're reading Hegel, and they know this vocabulary, and they know these ideas. 
I think is is incredibly important because it allows the contemporary Gnostic movement to explore not only its its roots historically, but also the the depth and complexity of its own experience of the world. And and so I I think that the fact that that we're reading these, that we're familiar with these, is striking in and of itself. And maybe modern Gnosticism is having the kind of resurgence that it is today, maybe that's overly hopeful, um, because of the availability of, of texts and information like you know, the Platonic Corpus, um, like the, the, the works of Hegel, right? That you can go online and you wanna read you know, the phenomenology of spirit, by all means, knock yourself out, which is probably what you'll end up doing. Um, but um, but it's available in a way that is absolutely unprecedented. And so I think that there is a sense in which modern Gnosticism is always philosophically informed, is always uh, philosophically expectant. It wants to... Uh, to explore these connections. And that's that's new and different and wonderful. And I think it is a, something that connects us to uh, to the classical Gnostics and to uh, to early Gnosticism. The desire to know uh, permeates every aspect of the modern Gnostics being. And that's going to include scientific knowledge. That's going to include mystical knowledge that's going to include philosophical knowledge and historical knowledge um and that's a wonderful wonderful thing so even if i can't necessarily and i think i probably could if i you know sort of worked at it right even if i can't necessarily trace a particular you know idea or concept or philosophical structure from say Burma through hegel and schelling to contemporary gnosticism right the impulse is the same and i think that that's what's that's what's most valuable yeah yeah i completely agree um so on the show we well, often of course talk you about... completely agree it's your job to completely agree <laughs> that's often i agree uh <laughs> often on the show we talk about how gnosticism can can seem to be in some of the gnostic ideas it can, it can be almost um startlingly uh, uh modern or seem to speak to modern situations uh, do you think gnosticism has something to say to contemporary philosophy like right here right now i i do and 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 i think that that the the emphasis in gnosticism on the practice of ritual the practice of uh, the use of, of mythology in a an embodied and uh, corporeal sense is something that is insufficiently explored by contemporary philosophy, though certainly uh, within the continental tradition, right? I mean, people like, like Deleuze and Guattari, people like uh, you know, Badu and, and Baudrillard were, were sort of struggling with this, right? I think that, that what we can do for philosophy is to keep those questions uh, front and center, to, to, to remind philosophy that, uh, that it has 
this role to play in our lives. And again, I think this is very, very similar to what the experience of the, the classical Gnostics was, when they lived at a time when, when the, the sense of, uh, of myth and the sense of, of magic was being erased by political and military forces that dominated uh, the world stage. Um, so I think that uh, we can offer something to uh, to the philosophical community um, and to remind it that it has a relationship to to the sacred and the divine. Um, and it has that that if philosophy is going to be a love of wisdom, um, it has to it has to reach beyond simple data gathering. I am. Um, I had a, 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 a dear friend some years ago, she, she was learning about philosophy. Um, she was almost a complete autodidact. And so she was reading all of this stuff. And she said to me, so I look at continental philosophy and I sort of see how that's the love of wisdom. I see those connections there. But I look at analytic philosophy and I, I don't see how that's really the love of wisdom. And I really pondered this for a while. And it was finally that I, I said, you know, I'm going to have to just talk to my analytic colleagues. And so every time I would see my analytic colleagues, I'd, you know, pour a couple of drinks down their throats and I'd say, you know, okay, so how is analytic philosophy the, the love of wisdom? And I would get these answers that were like, well, if you sort of look at it sideways and you, you step back and you squint your eyes, you can sort of see something that kind of looks like something that might resemble or bear a family resemblance to something that is kind of like the love of wisdom. And I was like, that is completely unsatisfying. And then I had, you know, I was out with a, a colleague and uh, I asked this question. And he just looked straight at me and said, well, we don't think of it in those terms anymore, which actually seemed like a really good answer on the one hand, but made me sort of disappointed for my analytic colleagues that they've lost something if they're not thinking about philosophy as this love of wisdom anymore. If it has simply become love of data, then, then we're not really doing philosophy anymore. And that's not to disparage uh, my analytic colleagues, but rather to, to sort of poke them a little bit and remind them, hey, this is, this is your tradition too. This is, this is what you signed on for. And this is what, what drew you to this. So don't, don't forget it. Don't let that go. Yeah, well, I think that that's the perfect place to to start wrapping up. Though, of course, I know we could go for hours. Um, before I let you go, Your Grace, and before we end the show, do you have anything you want to plug? Anything you want to get out there to to the people? No, I think that uh, you know, my work is my own work, and and um, you know, I do keep it it separate to a certain extent. Um, but you know, I really just encourage people to to explore these connections. I mean, there are so many resources that we have at our disposal. Um, so if I want to plug anything, I just want to plug knowing. I want to, you know, I want to put a shout out to knowledge. 
Um, and I think that anybody who's watching this right, is already feeling this, you know, is already understanding this. So, uh, so maybe I'm preaching to the, to the choir here, which is, you know, sort of my job. <laughs> yes, precisely. Well, uh, I have two quick plugs before we end, which is uh, I do uh, secular mindfulness uh, meditation every morning at 11 a.m. Montreal time. That's Eastern time. It's at mileendmeditation.substack.com. we got a great crowd that comes out. It's uh, I give instruction if you need it. It's an hour of meditation, a mix of guided and silent, and it's for everybody, whether it's your first time or you're an experienced uh, meditator. Uh, it is sort of in the more secular, non-religious uh, field of meditation and mindfulness. But that said, obviously, if you have an interest in Gnosticism or mysticism or spiritual work, then I think you would get a lot out of it. Uh, the other plug I have is holygrail.substack.com. Wow, the crisis is ongoing. I'm doing my AJC uh, the parish meetings online. You know, feel free to, to sit in anytime. It's usually the second Sunday, 7 p.m. Uh, in the evening. Montreal time that that's Eastern time and you can get all the details by by going there or going to uh, Joe and Ice dot uh, we're dot org right Joe and I dot org we are dot org yep. <laughs> yes <laughs> okay well uh, thanks again uh, your grace uh, it's been awesome and uh, we'll have to do it again sometime thank you it's 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 been good to to just see you Jonathan I mean we're it's been too long. So. Way too long, way too long. So fingers crossed for uh, Conclave 2022. Uh, hopefully we'll go. be able to gather in person. Thanks. That sounds great. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we'll see you then. <laughs> and good night.